Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Triangles Meditation Group. Today is November 28th, 2022. <clears throat> and as we do each week, let's begin with a brief moment of silence to link up with all Triangles workers throughout the world, followed by a sounding of the noontime recollection. We know, O oh Lord of life and love, about the need. Touch our hearts anew with love, that we too may love and give. We're working today as we do each week to support and strengthen the planetary network of triangles, a network whose purpose is to bring light and goodwill to our planet. And also we work to introduce the work of triangles to people who are new to it and to aid them in the forming of triangles. And so if you're new to this work, welcome. And please feel free if you would like to participate in a triangle to place your name in the chat box and surely two other people on the webinar will agree to form a triangle with you. It's a form of planetary service using the power of thought and prayer and visualization to transform consciousness. The work begins by linking with two other people anywhere in the world, and each day visualizing a lighted triangle between the three of you. You link together mentally, spiritually, and in a spirit of goodwill to all humanity. Your triangle is then placed within the larger planetary network of triangles. And then as the great invocation is sounded, a world prayer, the energies are distributed and released into the consciousness of all humanity, helping to find resonance within all open hearts and minds. The practice only takes a few minutes each day and can therefore be fit into even the busiest of schedules. And in our chat box, um, we're placing a link to a video that we were made that was made a couple of years ago. And some of the people who participate in this webinar each week are in the video. It's a brief video of people around the world sounding a line from the great invocation. And we thought that we would ask that any of you who might wish to do so would include this link in your holiday greetings to others encouraging them if they would so like to contribute towards a way of helping to capitalize on the many prayers and meditations that are going forth at this time of year by including in those prayers and meditations the great invocation and to let people know that it's available in over 70 languages. And so anyone who would like um, to do so, we would Really appreciate that cooperation. And after our meditation today, we'll be hearing from a regular guest, uh, Eduardo Gramalia, and he will be speaking as a part two on the Bhagavad Gita and the challenge of the disciple. And the last presentation by Eduardo on the Bhagavad Gita was really insightful and so I'm sure this one will not disappoint. So let's now, as we do each week, come together in a brief visualization that will set the field for the work to be done. Let's visualize a triangle of lighted energy and on each point of the triangle, Let's visualize a sphere. 
representative of the three planetary centers. Shambhala, the planetary head center. The spiritual hierarchy, the planetary heart. And humanity, the planetary throat center. Visualize the energies moving from point to point around the triangle, blending and merging with each other, filling the triangle with light. And now we breathe in and invoke the spiritual will to enter into the triangle. And we visualize a five-pointed star at its center point, the synthesizing point of the world teacher, merging east and west, past and future, radiating the energy of love wisdom. And visualize the energies radiating forth from the center of the star into the consciousness of the new group of world servers. Visualizing that group as a sphere of light, full of millions of points of light, representative of the new group workers. And as we sound the mantra, let's visualize the energies from the new group of world servers emanating from the spiritual hierarchy in the Christ, pouring out to all men and women of goodwill everywhere. Radiance, we are in power. We stand forever with our hands stretched out, linking the heavens and the earth, the inner world of meaning and the subtle world of glamour. We reach into the light and bring it down to meet the need. We reach into the silent place and bring from thence the gift of understanding. Thus with the light we work and turn the darkness into day. Sagittarius is an energy related to the third planetary center, the center of humanity. We can hypothesize this because we can think of this period of the lower interlude of this spiritual year as a reflection of the higher interlude during the spring. And Sagittarius, as we know, is the corresponding or complementary point to the sign of Gemini, its polar opposite. And therefore, we could conjecture that Sagittarius, like Gemini, is related to this third planetary center, the center of humanity. So during this time, we can keep the focus on this center, 
on humanity and its preparatory work under the powerful influence of these waning years of the stage of the forerunner. And we can use the powerful stimulation that comes each year in the Taurus and Scorpio axis, which is related to Shambhala, and appropriate those energies among the human kingdom so that we can move swiftly forward towards the goal. In terms of Sagittarius' relationship to humanity, it's said that this sign actually was governing many, many years ago in our planetary history when the center humanity was first brought to life. Humanity therefore came forth under this influence. And this is an encouraging thought to be ruled as a collective by such a liberating energy. In the larger scheme of things, we might say that the focus of our planetary life as a whole is also upon humanity, waiting for us to fully awaken to the opportunity of the times. And this is causing a strengthening within this planetary center and evoking powerful changes within the masses of people throughout the world as they awaken and realize the power that they innately yield and as a consequence are increasingly making their voices heard. And because of the intensity of global conditions and the apparent concentration of money in the hands of fewer and fewer people, the calls for justice around the world are intensifying. A number of decades ago, anthropologist Margaret Mead famously said that we should never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens could change the world. For she said, indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Today, however, it seems the situation has changed. And rather than a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens, we have instead a large and growing group spearheaded by the new group of world servers and finding agency through the millions of thoughtful, committed citizens of goodwill who in all walks of life and of all fields of endeavor are doing what they can to contribute towards the upliftment of planetary consciousness. Our societies in the West have been built up around what's called a social contract, a theory that had its origins in ancient Greece, but which more recently came into prominence during the Enlightenment through the writings of Swiss reformer Jean-Jacques Rousseau, as set forth in his 1762 book, The Social Contract. The idea was then expanded upon by other thinkers of the Enlightenment, such as Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and Immanuel Kant. The concept was then adopted widely by many Western societies. Social contract theory is based on a real or hypothetical agreement between the people and their rulers, whereby people agree to surrender some of their natural freedoms in return for the protection and security conferred by governments. But today, the sense among a growing number of people is that the social contract is fraying, and some would say that it has broken down. Growing numbers of people are concerned that certain basic freedoms are being taken away. But this has caused a shift in thought as people come to realize that ultimately the power does belong to them. People are recognizing that a revitalization, perhaps an updating of the software of our governing bodies and our economic systems is needed. The planetary Arjuna is seeking to assume control of our planetary life. And as we, humanity, are governed by this sign of Sagittarius, we are well equipped 
to rise to the challenge that inevitably comes when the old order is fraying. For just as the opposite sign of Gemini, the symbolism in Sagittarius is also strongly related to the Christ. And we see this clearly in one of the symbols of Sagittarius, the man with a bow and arrow riding upon the white horse. We know that one of the well-known symbols for the Christ is also the rider who comes forth from the secret place on a white horse. So we can see how during this cycle, we are being given this encouragement to use the power of our invocative appeal to draw forth the deep aspiration that resides within the heart of humanity. As humanity collectively stands with mass intent, we can affect that inner alignment which will enable us to reach up and touch those lives who stand behind this rider. And these lives are known as the Lords of Liberation. And they're said to be waiting to issue forth. They come from the highest center of spiritual will and they come to the aid of humanity. The Tibetan states that these Lords can be reached relatively easily, but only if humanity stands together, focalizing the mass intent. This can be undertaken by the collective work of the new group of world servers. So this year, from the period of the Sagittarius full moon and through to the Capricorn new moon, which takes place on December 26th, let's use the opportunity to focalize and direct the issuing forth of the prayers and many meditations coming from the heart of humanity. It's our task to do what we can to cooperate with all those who stand within the heart center of the new group of world servers and through the medium of the world teacher, project these prayers so that they can and will reach up to that highest center and evoke response. The opportunity is great and we cannot underestimate the possibilities that such an invocative peel could have in our world. Miracles are possible. So now let's work with our meditation. Let's integrate ourselves as a group, lifting our consciousness to the mental plane. Standing at the center of the even arm cross of discipleship. We link in thought as a soul, as a point of love and light with all people throughout the world who are working with this Triangles Meditation Group. And we project a line of lighted energy towards the highest center, Shambhala, and sound together the affirmation of the will. In the center of the will of God, I stand. Not shall deflect my will from his. I implement that will by love. I turn towards the field of service. I, the triangle divine, work out that will within the square and serve my fellow men. Visualization, using the creative imagination, 
link with two other points of light to create a triangle of light. Visualize the triangle in which you are working as an essential part of the Radiant Worldwide Triangles Network. Hold the consciousness immersed within the light of the group soul, the heart of love which underlies and infuses the network. Lift the consciousness to the world teacher who stands as the heart of love at the center of the spiritual hierarchy and also at the heart of each triangle. Holding the alignment between your triangle, the planetary network of triangles, the group soul, and the world teacher. Let's hold the group mind open and receptive to the inpouring energies of love. Precipitation. Visualize these energies of love, light, and goodwill circulating in and around the triangle's network from point to point and flowing out through the network into the hearts and minds of people everywhere. Visualize these energies unifying and eliminating all divisions within humanity, healing and transforming human consciousness, and establishing right human relationships.
Standing together as a group, we sound the mantram of unification. The sons of men are one, and I am one with them. I seek to love, not hate. I seek to serve, and not exact due service. I seek to heal, not hurt. Let pain bring due reward of light and love. Let the soul control the outer form and life and all events and bring to light the love that underlies the happenings of the time. Let vision come and insight. Let the future stand revealed. Let inner union demonstrate and outer cleavages be gone. Let love prevail. Let all people love. Visualize the whole planet alight with triangles. See new triangles being formed everywhere. Distribution, sounding the great invocation, silently or aloud. And as we repeat each stanza, let's visualize the network acting as a link between the world of spiritual realities and humanity, as a channel through which light and love and divine purpose may flow into human consciousness. From the point of light, within the mind of God, let light stream forth into human minds. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love, within the heart of God, let love stream forth into human hearts. May the coming one return to earth. From the center where the will of God is known, let purpose guide all little human wills, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the center which we call the human race, let the plan of love and light work out and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. Thank you, everyone. 
And now I'd like to welcome Eduardo. Hi, Eduardo. Hi, Kathy. Hey. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here again. Happy to have you here. <laughs> and hello, everyone. Greetings from this roasting summer of this hemisphere. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for an inspiring meditation. Hello, everyone. So my presentation today is on the Bhagavad Gita and the challenge of the disciple, which my Gemini moon has slightly changed into the Bhagavad Gita and the end of illusion. But don't worry, just only the title has changed, not the subject, not the core matter. And so I will share screen. Okay. So the Bhagavad Gita and the end of illusions. Both H.P. Blavatsky and Alice Bailey consider the Bhagavad Gita as a deeply esoteric work. The story of Arjuna, as I said in my last presentation, symbolically depicts the challenges every spiritual disciple has to face. It could rightfully be called allegory, a story used as metaphor and intended to teach us something, if we can truly unveil its hidden meaning. This book, the Bhagavad Gita, is not some cryptic treatise on the affairs of an initiate or adept. The Bhagavad Gita is useful for all aspirants, and the challenges which Arjuna, the symbol of the disciple, faces are the problems of all disciples throughout the ages. As I said last time, symbolism is like beauty. Either you see it or not, but it is there to be uncovered. As we said, the Bhagavad Gita is contained within a major epic poem, the Mahabharata. The story revolves around two sets of cousins, the Pandava of divine origin and the Kaurava of a darker origin. These two branches of the same family would become bitter rivals and oppose each other in a war for the land. A right symbol for those bright and dark sides inside every human being. Of the five brothers, Arjuna is the commander-in-chief of the Pandava army and Krishna is his charioteer. Krishna, an incarnation of the god Vishnu, the Christ or love aspect of God is the symbol of the divine soul who imparts life-giving wisdom to the human or incarnated soul, the disciple Arjuna. So the tension between both groups of cousins escalates and the rival hosts finally face each other on the field of Kurukshetra. It is at this point that the Bhagavad Gita commences. Suddenly, Arjuna loses confidence in everything he's supposed to do as a warrior. As soon as he was about to launch the battle, he falls down at Krishna's feet and complains. Krishna, my legs grow weak, my mouth is drying, my body trembles, and my hair stands on end. My bow slips from my hands. Teachers, fathers, sons, as well as grandfathers, mothers, brothers, fathers-in-law, grandsons, brothers-in-law, and all other relatives, they're all there. These I do not wish to kill. It is then that Krishna turns to him, whispering a teaching that becomes the Bhagavad Gita. And I wonder if we can realize how unusual and unique this situation is. While tension builds up between two armies, right at the moment of silence, before the horror is unleashed, Arjuna powers off and in the middle of the battlefield, Krishna discloses the most sacred teachings on union with the divine. If you give it some thought, it is truly amazing. So we may wonder which is the conflict that the disciple faces. Knowing that this war is a symbol 
we may wonder what kind of a war this is. Arjuna in the battlefield faces a terrible conundrum. All his acquaintances, family, friends, even his own master are arrayed to battle against him. He as warrior must slaughter them. Shall he cower off and revert to the downward, dark path of form or proceed with courage and do what he has to do? In turn, Krishna, symbol of the inner soul, stands poised in observation of the conflict of unleashed forces. So who are really Arjuna's enemies? His familiar things, attachments with whom age long dependence has been established for countless incarnations. The moment the battle is about to start symbolizes this transcendental decision to abandon the way of death, of form and separation, and to step on the inward path, that path of return to the source, in Sanskrit, the Nivritti Marga. The dream of the incarnated soul has led to all kinds of contracts with time and space. The incarnating human being has submitted to all kinds of guidance, religions, and traditions. He has now to let go, to move on, even if this involves the sacrifice of all these dear things on the altar of life. When the bow slips from his hands, Arjuna feels an unbearable sadness that inevitable experience of all of us who seek the spiritual path. He realizes that he's attached to institutions, standards of behavior, and established beliefs. They are his family, so to say. So, with a heavy heart, Arjuna says, my heart is weighed down with the vice of faintness. My mind is confused as to dharma or duty. We said last time that dharma is the main subject of the whole story. Thus, Arjuna, disoriented and with a feeling of futility that everything is in vain, a feeling so familiar to many of us, cries, Nayotsya, I will not fight. And Krishna, seeing that Arjuna refused to take his weapons and fight, warns him that victory and defeat are the same. He urges him to act, but not to reflect on the fruit of the action. Once you have made pleasure and pain, gain and loss, victory and defeat the same, then you will be ready for battle. Krishna tells Arjuna to seek detachment and fight without desire, but Arjuna is confused. Any one of us would be, really. How can one seek detachment and yet be urged to slaughter? On the surface, these words appear to be confusing, ambiguous, but the fact is that a deeper truth is here hinted at. Krishna enjoins him not to withdraw from action or for, from the world. One must act, but in the heart of action, one must remain free from all attachment, since sages look equally on a Brahmana adorned with learning, vidya, and humility, vinaya, a cow, an elephant, and even a dog, and an outcast. Speaking of the Bhagavad Gita, the Tibetan, who considers this book a must-read for all aspirants to the path, explains that the relinquishment of the relinquishment of gain is another formulation for the law of sacrifice. The soul must relinquish the personality. For ages, the soul has identified itself with the lower personal self, and through its agency, it has acquired knowledge and gained experience. The time is now come when that agency is no longer dear to the soul. 
And it is now the personality which has to identify itself with the soul, thus losing its separate gain. Being detached from the outer world of phenomena involves a transcendental recognition that there is an observer, a seer, a soul, and that although we identify ourselves with our ideas and identity, this is just the outer layer of the mind, its concrete aspects. It is said that the senses are great, greater than the senses is the mind, greater than the mind is pure reason, intuition or buddhi, but what is greater than reason is he, the supreme, the Atman, the spirit. And these verses are deeply meaningful. They suggest that there is so much beyond the mind. In other words, within this mental field, manas, a knower, an observer, the soul is found. In turn, a reflection of the eternal Atman or spirit. Beyond the mental field, the realm of pure reason or intuition is found. It seems that the individual soul, the seat of individuality, the midpoint between the lower and higher mind, must eventually weave an antahkarana or bridge towards the spiritual realms, the spiritual triad. This fusion with the buddhic nature is perhaps the promise of escape from the maya of the world. For the disciple to hold his mind steady in the light and be fixed on that high point, a higher level of attention is needed so that the inner focus can be turned from the outer world of effects to the inner world of causes. This kind of deep attention is hinted at in one of the most remarkable shlokas or verses of the Bhagavad Gita. In that which is the night nisha of all beings, the yogi is awake, jagrati. That in which all beings are awake is the night of the sage who sees. I think its meaning becomes evident for any intuitive mind. The world of the sage who has found enlightenment would be darkness, night, something incomprehensible for anyone attached to the experience of the senses and self-centered desire. It is in those higher realms unknown for the ordinary human being that the sage is active, the outer world being his field of service. On the other hand, what all beings attached to form consider alive, interesting, worthy of attention, that life is futile, vain for a sage, even equivalent to death. Therefore, the Muni or sage does not take active part in a life which he has already experienced for many incarnations and outgrown. This involves a complete change in polarization of attitude. And it has nothing to do with retiring from the world or escaping one's duties. It does imply moving against the mainstream of socially accepted behavior and becoming a real spiritual warrior. We know that, don't we? The problem of action is one of the most difficult matters to truly understand. And Krishna poses that question. He says, what is action, kim karma? What is inaction, kim akarma? Karma, the word for action. He further adds that even the wise are hearing perplexed. What hope do we have then, really? <laughs> Difficult, mysterious is the path of action, says Krishna. And here comes the solution, as it seems. He who sees inaction in action, an action in inaction, he is wise among men. Okay, another riddle, another puzzle. I, I know. But I wonder if we could also translate this sentence as 
he who sees silence in action, an action in silence, he's wise among men. In a way, I believe the Bhagavad Gita relates this deep silence and peace with the energy of the soul. It is the disciple who raises himself to those heights, so to say, and following hints from the Tibetan, I find it interesting to see that this in terms of altitude. In the sixth son or book, the yogi is de depicted as on a high place, Kutastita, that is on a summit, on a high rock, this sense of altitude pointing to an unwavering position in spiritual realms. The picture of a summit of a high mountain is just a symbol, as we can guess. No one is saying that the disciple should withdraw to a lonely place on the top of a mountain. We can think of a disciple holding his mind steady in the light of the soul, the middle point between the higher mind and the lower personality. Or we could even extend the reach of our imagination and picture a great initiate holding his consciousness in the realms of the spiritual triad, the realm of intuition and pure will. But I wonder what the effect would be in our lives and what our usefulness should we be able to turn the focus of the mind towards the world of causes while considering this world of phenomena as a field of service or even training. So now we see action as mysterious as it can be is in quite another light, don't we? The awakened human being, the Bhagavad Gita says, remains in a secret place by himself, Rahasis Tita, permanently with thought and self subdued, that is, always with the body, mind, and self seated, poised on that high place. His consciousness is steady in the light of that high point within the mind, its apex, so to say, in Krishna's word, in a pure or sacred place, neither very much raised nor very low. Shuchaudeshe in Sanskrit, in a holy land, also literally in a clean land, but not too high nor too low. In that middle land in which the higher and the lower meet, the land of the soul, the real self, in turn a reflection of the spirit. We can consciously direct the focus towards the realms of the spiritual triad, the realm of intuition, or to, to the outer world in service. This soul thus turns out to be a lamp which does not flicker in a windless place. Thus the joy of the eternal is known as well as that land where truth resides. This union or synthesis is what freedom really means. The disciple sees himself within the heart of all beings and sees all beings within his own heart. This, in other words, means that the true battlefield is oneself, where no warriors nor weapons are needed, for each man must fight alone. Thus, on the Kurukshetra, the field of battle, the disciple Arjuna bears witness to an inner recognition from which there is no return. And he finally begged Krishna to show him his universal form, his Vishvarupa. In other words, he wanted to see his soul face to face. In this climaxing moment, Arjuna, overwhelmed with deep astonishment and awe, bowed down his head to the shining one and said with joined palms and shaken to the depth. I see you everywhere, unbounded form, beginning, middle, end, but your source I do not find. Infinite Lord, infinite form, blazing as fire, the gaze dazzling as sun, immeasurable from all sides of the sky. The experience of a disciple in his third initiation, we are told. And to that, the universal form of Vishnu replied, Time I am, 
laying desolate the world, made manifest on earth to slay mankind. Not one of these warriors ranged for battle escapes death. You alone will survive. The disciple alone will survive death. This is a great symbol. And Krishna goes on, I have already defeated all these warriors. In the ninth chapter or song, Krishna reveals a supreme mystery, Raja Vidya, in his words, the most secret wisdom. This supreme knowledge is only transmitted through direct experience, pratyaksha in Sanskrit. Those who do not believe in those truths return to incarnation over and over again. Krishna says, by me all this world is pervaded in my invisible being. All beings have their roots in me and I am not rooted in them. Krishna tells Arjuna to meditate on this sacred mystery. I am the source of all beings, Bhuta Bhavana, but he does not depend on anything or anyone. And at the end of the age, when everything returns to the bosom of nature, everything returns to my nature, Krishna says. And when a new day begins, I bring them back to life. The law of cyclic reappearance isn't it? So the big picture thus appears extraordinary. Behind change, there's always an eternal and undying nature. Is this not the theme of the soul's endeavor, we may wonder? The universal Krishna is here saying, having pervaded the words with a fraction of myself, I remain. This is the translation of the Tibetan. Such is the very spirit which must underlie every creative work, after all. However, the soul must also relinquish its tie with all the other personal selves. The disciple must come to the point when he can meet other selves on the plane of the soul. He must learn to serve without attachment to results and relinquish the fruits of service. Arjuna sees the form of God wherein all forms constitute the one form. The battle is then, and only then, over. The soul is in complete control, and no sense of separativeness is then possible. It is with this detachment that Arjuna can sound the horn, even with the horrors of the war to come. So, as the Tibetan points out in White Magic, the Gita lays such simple rules whereby depression, sadness, and, most important, illusion can be overcome. These rules emerge as we learn to read this story between the lines. I think these rules would prove to be extremely useful for all of us in these difficult times. Know yourself to be to be the undying one. Control your mind, for through that mind the undying one can be known. Learn that the form is but a veil which hides the splendor of divinity. Realize that the one life pervades all forms so that there is no death, no distress, no separation. Detach yourself, therefore, from the form side and meet the divine within on that high place, again, the high place where light and life are truly found. Thus, illusion ends, and I would add, a new human being is born. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eduardo. That was something we could all uh, read again, I'm sure, <laughs> with good, good measure. Um, I think this is one of the many aspects from which we can see the Bhagavad Gita is so it has so many layers of, of, of meaning 
of, yeah. uh, it can be seen from so many standpoints and so many angles. So it is really impossible for anyone, no matter how how scholarly one may be. I, I am not really a scholar in in, in the sense that one uh, from from India could be, but no one can make justice to what the depth of thought that this uh, Bhagavad Gita contains. Mm -hmm. So, but the Tibetan uh, advises to meditate most particularly on the third on the first three books. Uh, the Tibetan says that uh, within these first three books, the whole problem of the disciple is contained. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting when you were speaking, it, it seemed so much more clear to me that this time that it's not so much about whether we should act or not act on the physical plane, but it's more the battle within ourselves, you know, and... Exactly the strength needed to go on because as you know we're told in the teaching sometimes when people reach a certain age they want to just give up and just rest but the disciple and someone like Arjuna that's really not an option although it might be a desire yeah, <laughs> yeah. the problem of action so mysterious isn't it yes. and in a way, in uh, in some place, Krishna said, so stand up, fight. I myself am never without action. So this is a whole new concept of action, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't preclude having to act and act of in course. a very difficult situation on the physical plane. That is also, of course, it, you know, the idea that it, whether we act or whether we don't act, that's not really so much the issue, but to do, to recognize what it is our dharma is, you know, mm. because we all have a different dharma, and therefore the path is, is varied for each individual. But essentially, it's about adhering to the inner voice of the soul mm. that will guide us. Well, Arjuna was supposed to fight, so he had to fight. He had to, yeah. to stop in action. He had to kill his relatives. His yeah. relatives being the symbol of all those dear things, uh, all those contracts that he had sort of uh, signed during so many incarnations. Yeah. He, has, he had to act. It, that that involves a decision in that case. But yeah. it, it is wonderful that all this transmission of this uh, in uh, the moment when Krishna imparts of these thoughts on yoga is right before the battle yes. starts, the moment of silence. And we know that a horror will be unleashed so it's 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 amazing the the the, the symbol of the power of the image is amazing yeah i think he says the tibetan says somewhere that um one of the astrological energies associated with the gita is libra and when you're speaking about that it seems like that libran point of poise before that must be established in order to enter uh, into the Battle of Scorpio. So yeah. it, it seems to make sense. Well, in, in a way, it's quite graphical, isn't it? Because Arjuna has to decide between two things. Uh, will he make the decision to step on the, 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 the inner path, the Nivriti Marga, or shall he uh, recede and, 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 and get once more involved in form, it is a decision. There are two paths. Uh, the Hermetic writings spoke about, about those two paths. The, uh, uh, one was called the way of death and, and the other one, the way of light, the ascending way of light. So in a way, it implies a, a polarity, a decision that he has to make. Yeah. So it's very Libra, really. Yeah. 
Yeah. But the result is the battle. <laughs> uh, the result will be the battle. And you know, I have said that the last presentation, that the result is catastrophic. Yeah. <laughs> so the battle leads to so much cruelty in the Mahabharata after the Bhagavad Gita is over. So, and so this, well, maybe this is a symbol, not, not a symbol, a, a remembrance or, or let's say an Atavic record of some great war that really took place in Atlantis, yeah. for instance. Yeah. So it, it, it may have some core of history within, but uh, the Bhagavad Gita is a whole symbol in itself. And you can read it, I imagine, in the original Sanskrit. Is that correct? Yes, it's it's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> I have studied it in Sanskrit, but it's difficult because you have to really, well, every word has a such depth of meaning, and and uh, so, uh, in a way, uh, I still it's a it's a it's a non-going intent, so to say. Do you have a particular translation that you consider um, the best in your estimation? Well, I really advise, uh, after so many years, I really advise to have three or four translations at hand. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, different translators uh, have focused and have different focus and, and um, have different bright moments and not very bright moments so mm. one should compare well alice bailey when when speaking about the patanjali and the yoga sutras alice bailey advises the same yes yes so can you suggest to the group um the four three or four that you think are high quality well the um, the most so to say, literal one I have found is one by Annie Besant, the philosopher. Ah, did yeah. she? Did but, she understand Sanskrit? Yeah, he was a Sanskritist. Yes, a very accomplished Sanskritist. Yes. Wow. Of course. And uh, but unfortunately, this is in such old English and so formal, so to say. Mm. So we read thou thine, so so maybe. Uh, someone should sort of update it, but it's a very literal and faithful translation as I have found. Mm -hmm. And I know the the latter, the, the former um, president of, of the Theosophical Society, Radha Burnier, uh, was also Sanskritist and had a translation which uh, she never published, unfortunately. Mm. So, and I am not really much aware of the of the translations in English. I have four or five translations in Spanish and two in English. Mm. Um, so, well, and unfortunately, in the libraries there are not many translations available. Mm. And the Charles Johnson one, you haven't necessarily. Well, this is a very classical one. One uh -huh. should have that, I think. Yes, yeah. but of course. Um, intuition in uh, individual intuition does the miracle so to say so yeah let us not put so much stress in the translator and just trust ourselves okay so one, one has to read and meditate and reflect very much on each paragraph because it has so many layers of meaning and as i suggested you can interpret this in terms of the disciple, and there's also the layer of initiate. And the, the same things happen once the soul is transcended and the spiritual triad is, uh, uh, so to say, um, visualized. So uh, these, this kind of, 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 of literary works have so many levels, so to say. Right. It's, they are great. Uh, they are great for meditation. Well, you've encouraged us all to pursue a deeper study of, of this great work, and so I think we we should come to an end now, unfortunately. And there are many comments which we appreciate, and I will send those to you, Eduardo.
Of course, I can email or, or answer any any questions by email. Okay. No problem. All right. All right. So let's just close by taking a moment of silence to visualize the planet surrounded by a network of triangles. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Edward.